Welcome to the Toa On Air podcast. I am Nico, the founder of Tech Open Air. At Toa, our mission is to help people, organizations, and the planet become future-proof. Our T stands for technology, but it is not features, but the relationship between technology, work, and life that we seek to explore. And we'll give you context around the latest trends so you can make better decisions moving forward. Excited to now present you the following conversation I had with Eric Holthaus. Eric may be the only climate journalist boasting half a million Twitter followers. He's the founder of The Phoenix, a publication devoted to radical change in the climate emergency. Previously, Eric was writer for The Wall Street Journal, Quartz, Slate, and many others. He's also the author of The Future Earth, a radical vision for what's possible in the age of warming. And according to Rolling Stone, he is the rebel nerd of meteorology. We talked about the problem of climate change and the roadblocks in fighting it, but also how we can change the narrative of the climate emergency away from dystopia towards courageous and imaginative possibility. And of course, what we can do as individuals when it comes to climate action. I hope you will enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the TOA On Air podcast, another edition. And today I'm talking to Eric Holthaus. Welcome to the show, Eric. Uh, you've also previously been a, a writer for the Wall Street Journal, for Quartz. I read a few articles on Slate. Um, and you recently published a book called The Future Earth, a Radical Vision for What's Possible in the Age of Warming. You've also been called a rebel nerd of meteorology by the Rolling Stones, which I found the best quote on you so far. <laughs> uh, why is that? Like, how, what's the, well, let's debunk this or, or de decipher this. Like, what's the rebel and what's the nerdy part? Great. So <laughs> this is funny because I think for a long time, we were in the meteorological sciences really afraid to talk about the truth as it mm -hmm. is. I think that for a long time, there was some confusion about proper behavior uh, surrounding climate change. And I think that I just didn't care. Honestly, <laughs> I think it was like, this was, you know, 10 years ago or so. And it was a moment when it felt like it was really, really important to make sure that we understood how important climate change was. It wasn't just a science issue. It was a humanity issue. So the future or, or the, uh, the um, inconvenient truth had just come out from Al Gore. Mm -hmm. We were still years away from Paris, but had just finished the failed Copenhagen uh, climate talks. And it just felt like an all hands on deck moment. And I just wanted to, to say that. And what was the reason you think that there wasn't you know, the strive for meteorologists and, and climate journalists to make that case? Was it a lack of consensus, a lack of knowledge? Was it, you know, what were the reasons for it? I read that, you know, not long ago, a study I found that, you know, nearly half of all U.S. meteorologists uh, did not believe that humans are the cause of climate change. How come? Right. I think that it's a cultural thing, really. It was a cultural uh, moment. And uh, to be fair, the science has come a long way uh, in these past 10 years. Um, and I don't think that I personally had anything to do with it, but um, it was just more um, and more people having revelations like mine 
that this is a moment that demands us to go outside of our comfort zone. So I think meteorologists are, that, that's the, where the nerd part came in. You know, meteorologists love data and, and numbers and, you know, looking at the weather, you know, looking at the weather, um, looking at clouds is often a solitary activity. So there's a lot of introverts in meteorology. There's a lot of people that like to just focus on, you know, computer coding and making sure that their their models work and making sure that their their predictions um, are accurate. And I think that we have become much, much, much more collaborative over the past 10 years as a science. Um, we have learned that the classic case is, is warning about tornadoes or severe weather. In the past, even 10 years ago, there was this instinct that meteorologists had was, if I create the perfect forecast, then people will receive it and people will act perfectly on it. And that will save lives. And it just wasn't true. You know, our, our forecasts were improving and the numbers of people who were injured and dying were staying the same. And people were really puzzled. And then we had a couple of really terrible tornado outbreaks in, in 2011, in April of 2011. I still remember uh, watching across the southern United States. There were hundreds of tornadoes that day and hundreds of people died. Um, one of the worst uh, tornado um, outbreaks in the United States history. And everyone was sort of left with, where did we go wrong? And the result, the major result from that, from that event was that um, it wasn't the forecast. The forecast was great. It was the fact that you have structural racism, structural poverty, and a society that was told to fend for itself. In, especially in the southern United States, which is one of the poorest regions of the United States, sort of intentionally left poor to make sure that they, um, this is a predominantly area of uh, where, where, where black people still live, where slavery was, was the law for 100 years. And, you know, it's still being sort of exploited now, you know, 100 years after, more than 100 years after slavery was abolished. So, and all that matters to a weather forecast. We have to know who the people are, what are their living circumstances, what are they doing, what are they likely to be doing at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon when this forecast comes through? How can we meet them where they are? Rather than just saying, you know, if I punch my numbers in and it turns on a scrolling text across the television screen, that people will be there to receive it, you know minimum wage jobs are often not in front of a computer terminal like the like meteorologists sit <laughs> you know um they're they're service industry jobs and they're going to be um and unless um they are set up to receive this information or their employer um sends them the information um they're going to be in danger and their families will be you know often working multiple jobs often having multi-generational households the children might be separated from the parents for a while as this is happening. All of that is being factored into weather forecasts now, and it never really was to this extent. So that is sort of the revolution that I thought needed to happen. And that's the revolution that still needs to happen with climate change. That's why we're not paying attention to, to climate warnings. I guess that's where also the, the name eco-socialist comes from. Right, that I've read you, you, you referring yourself to in it. And that's so it requires not just a scientific undertaking, but this is actually a social issue. Yes, it requires a structural change in society. 
It requires a cultural change in society. It requires us to treat each other as we're all worthy of having a role in the world that's being built right now. Um, it's not It's not sort of a, again, 30 years ago, I think people thought climate action was something like, well, if we switch out the the power plants that supply your your electricity, or if we insulate homes, or if we um, increase energy efficiency, or if we all drive electric cars, then the problem will be solved. But it's a it's such a deep cultural problem. It uh, climate impacts everything. Um, climate impacts all aspects of society, from the food we eat to where we sleep to where our houses are to the emotional tenor of our lives. Like we are all of us internalizing some degree of fear and guilt and uncertainty about the future now. You know, kids that are growing up now don't know if the world will be the same as it is now um, when they're our age. And that is terrifying. I don't know how it's hard to, to be a kid these days. And I think that until we have some sort of multiple society-wide initiatives that are inclusive enough to say, this is the scale of the problem that requires a, a solution on the same scale of restructuring the global economy. And I mean, to be blunt, that's what it's going to require. It's going to require an economic system that is not centered on extractive capitalism that has for hundreds of years taken advantage of people and pushed the risk of living onto, you know, wage earners. I think that if we built a society that was more uh, centered on mutual aid and mutual respect, you know, as Kate Rayworth calls it, a circular economy, a donut Mm -hmm. economy, where we have on the outer boundary, the very clearly defined planetary boundaries that we know we're running uh, past now. And on the in the center, we have an inner boundary where it's basic social and human rights, guaranteeing that we have enough, that every person in the world has enough, not only to survive, but to thrive. We have those resources now. You know, for the first time in human history, we have enough where everyone can thrive, no matter how they were born, no matter what rare genetic diseases that they're born with, you know, we have enough to put attention on every single human. And beyond that, we have enough to put attention on every single species in the world to make sure that species are not going uh, extinct and ecosystems are not collapsing at a rate that that threatens all of us. And, you know, I, <laughs> I learned all of this by just paying attention to the weather and paying attention to climate scientists that say that in order to solve a problem of this magnitude, you have to change the way the system works. And listening to people who are on the front lines of this crisis tell me what they need to thrive. It's been as easy as that, which is still a little bit confusing to me why it's so hard for for us to take the action that we need. So before we dive deeper in, into sort of some possible, you know, actions that we can take as individuals, as corporations, as countries, as, you know, governors or governance uh, structures, just, you know, briefly, and, and I feel like, you know, we want to spend a good part talking about that because also your book seems to be hopeful. And also in your first statement here, you know, I sense that you have hope for us being able to take this ship uh, into the right course. 
Um, but just briefly for those who may be, you know, still kind of digging deeper into this subject matter, like how big is the actual problem at the moment? Like what are we steering towards to? You were quoted um, as we now stand on the brink of collapse. Can you just maybe paint us that, you know, dark picture for a second? Sure. Yeah. So the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, rise in global temperatures from pre-industrial is very important. It's a very important target. And I think that the way it's been uh, described is sort of an aspirational negotiation point in the Paris Agreement. But this is an existential threat for hundreds of millions of people around the world. In essentially every country in the world, we'll have people whose lives are put in jeopardy by passing this, this point. We're finding out now, even just last week, there was a new study that said that at temperature, global temperatures above 1.5, there will be regions of the tropics where the wet bulb temperature, the, the humidity, the absolute humidity in the air, the amount of water vapor that the air contains will raise the perceived temperature. So the, so the, um, our bodies need to have a certain level of, of humidity and temperature below which we can sweat and then evaporate um, moisture off of our bodies to cool ourselves. So there will be regions of the world, which is, are already happening very occasionally, like once or twice a year in some cities like coastal Pakistan or coastal um, Iran, those sorts of very unique places now. But it will be happening in widespread areas across the, the Earth's tropics that human bodies are no longer able to cool themselves, that anyone outside for any length of time, you know, beyond 15 or 20 minutes will be at risk of hypothermia or hyperthermia and, and death. Essentially, those places will be uninhabitable for certain stretches of the year. So, you know, we have two choices. People can live inside in air conditioning or we can stop that temperature rise from happening to save those regions. And that to me is one of the most striking consequences of this temperature target that is not too far away. You know, 2020 last year was tied with 2016 for the hottest year in human history. We are now, you know, in the early days and months in this sort of transition period out of the, the pandemic. We are now, as a global society, emitting more carbon than we did before the pandemic began. We are really rebuilding in the wrong way from this pandemic. And that has to change immediately. Or, I mean, we're on, we're on a pace to uh, lock in 1.5 degrees in the next five to eight years. This is something that is extremely urgent. That, and that's why I think all through the pandemic, which the, this, this message was lost a little bit because clearly we were focused on saving each other's lives from this horrible disease. But uh, what was lost a little bit was that, you know, if you remember, right as the pandemic hit was right at the height of the, the school strike movement. And that's when, you know, it seemed like the youth were on the verge of sort of dictating how the how the planet needs to to shift and that momentum has been lost as well so we've we've not only made the problem worse this past year but now we've lost the social movement or a, a large part of the social movement to demand those changes 
So we need something new. We need something else. I don't know what it's going to be. Is there any silver lining in the sense that maybe the world has learned to cooperate on sort of a macroeconomic and political um, spectrum, multilateral spectrum? I think the biggest achievement has been on the, the complete other end of the spectrum that you just mentioned. I think it's mm -hmm. been in individual people's minds and in individual families. I think we've been confronted with a very scary year, a year where we had to rethink everything, each of us. You know, I was working from home before, but then I became also a full-time caregiver and uh, a distance teacher to my child in kindergarten. You know. Everyone lost their in-person friendships. We have had to rebuild social networks and figure out a way to support each other and love each other through this very terrifying period. And I think that we've learned a lot about trauma and learned a lot about how we, how we can do hard things if we have to. And it's not fun and it's not easy, but we were doing it for each other to keep each other safe. That's the same spirit that needs to happen and the same intensity of, of action that needs to happen with climate. We know now the scale at which we need to keep acting for at least the next five to eight years in order to make sure that everyone that doesn't have a job right now can have a job working on the climate emergency, working in a meaningful way of making the future a better place. And I want to maybe structure the, let's say, possible solutions or, or, you know, action that we can take as society a little bit by sort of going from macro to micro. Um, so, so on the political sphere, you have a new government and, you know, what would you hope for become a priority for this new government? Sure. Well, in the United States, we have the next item on the agenda, on the Biden-Harris agenda is a massive climate bill. Somewhere between two and four trillion dollars they've been discussing, which is, you know, roughly 20 to 40 percent of the U.S. annual economy is going to be invested into this single bill that will fund renewable energy. It will direct that money towards low income and uh, communities of color. It will take a big step, hopefully, to restructuring American society in a very important way. That bill is going to be introduced and debated for the next few months. And I think that um, the outcome of that bill will be extremely important. So that they're talking about potentially also including something like a, a carbon tax on exports uh, or, you know, any goods and services leaving or entering the country will be subject to a carbon tax that can mm -hmm. quickly spread around the world. You know, if the, if the American economy is imposing a carbon tax, then that will need to be um, felt in Europe. That will be, need to be felt in Asia. That will need to be felt all around the world. That will help from a macroeconomic standpoint. But I'm really nervous of these sort of market market forces, trusting market forces to, to solve things. So I think we also need to do uh, a lot of reg regulatory work in the United States and a lot of dir just directly legislating the things that need to change. Like we need to have funding for retrofitting every house in the United States. We need to have um, housing be considered a right in the United States and not a privilege. We need to have a job be considered a right in the United States and not a privilege. We need to have it not, <laughs> not impossible to survive. Uh, you know, I, I think when we go too far, which is where the United States has come, 
you have to pay, you have to literally pay money to survive here. <laughs> um, and I think that's just not, not something that, that families need to be worrying about during this, you know, five to eight year period where we all need to be giving everything we have into fixing this problem in order to, to sort of free up people's family life and family attention. We need to also have, you know, funded childcare, which is, would have been very helpful over this last year, right? Like if you are working multiple jobs, you can't also watch your kids at the same time. So, you know, childcare is a climate strategy. That's something that, you know, when you pay attention to the, the people's lives who are um, at the front lines of this crisis, that's the kind of solutions that they need. That's, that's what they're asking for. And, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, we would have never really considered that as a climate, climate action, which is good that we have a government now that is willing to take those steps. And would it also require, you know, sort of a common narrative or, you know, is, is it more grassroots or would it be helpful to have, you know, global leaders, you know, that, that can build a share and, and sell a shared narrative that people can buy into? I read somewhere that you were quoted also saying that, you know, this narrative from it needs to go from dystopia towards something that is a bit more courageous and imaginative. Yeah, you know, I think that's important. And I think that if you go back to um, Joe Biden's inaugural speech in January, mm -hmm. he spoke a lot about courage and about this American spirit of nothing is impossible. If we decide to do it, we can do it. Um, and that's a little bit, you know, imperialist for me. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think that, you know, we already have, you know, we can take NASA as, a, as an example We have this, the space, American space industry grew out of the defense industry in World War II, and it became centered on education and exploration and science. And it came, it inspired multiple generations now of people all over the world to say that we can do great mm -hmm. things. If we come together, we can inspire people to dream bigger. To understand our place in the universe, really. And that's kind of what we are deciding now as a civil, as a global civilization is, does humanity want to be this, like, for the next 500 years, do we want to be this sort of common collective group of people, of, you know, spiritualities and um, dreams working together in all of our different ways of deciding our place in the universe? Or do we want to continue to stay fractured and fighting with each other? And that's really, that is what has led us to this sort of arms race of pollution and emissions and understanding that, you know, if I own a factory, I can pollute without caring where it goes because it's not going to affect me or my kids. It's going to affect yeah. someone else's kids. And yeah. that's the opposite um, mentality of what we need to survive, really, as a species from this point on. And you mentioned imperialism, and um, it reminded me sort of uh, the discussion, you know, around the Amazon and, and just protecting rainforests being, you know, a crucial uh, and very impactful measure um, that we could be taking because, you know, for the obvious, uh, you know, reduction in, in burned um, carbon dioxide. But it also seems like 
you know, some form of almost carbon colonialism that's being quoted, right? In in sort of rich nations telling, uh, you know, um, the rainforest countries, Brazil, etc., uh, to stop deforestation or, you know, China to, you know, have um, more clean energy. How, how are we going to solve that aspect? Is it incentive-based? Should one, for example, better connect carbon credits to those uh, regional uh, communities that give incentive to, uh, you know, not deforesting? Or like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think trees in general are very problematic in the way we think about them. Trees last for hundreds of years, you know, and, and if you are, if you have a market-based carbon strategy that requires you to plant trees, there needs to be someone to watch those trees for mm -hmm. a couple hundred years to make sure that the carbon stays out of the atmosphere. And trees already exist. Uh, there are people that live there, you know, you know, there's people that live in the Amazon. Um, these are indigenous lands. I think what needs to happen is that we need to give more forests and more lands back to indigenous people because mm -hmm. they've done the best job of any of us to steward those those trees and that land for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that is, um, you know, you can you can read about studies of lands um, held in indigenous trust sequester more carbon than lands that don't. Mm -hmm. And that's true all over the world. Uh, it's the same strategy strategy that should be held in, in the United States, that we should be in the active process of giving land back to indigenous people here. That is a climate, um, that's one of the most important climate strategies that we have. And mm -hmm. I think that I don't know, I'm, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a politician or political scientist. I don't know how to convince the Brazilian government to do that. The, but the United States is a strong country, so is uh, the EU is a strong uh, group of nations. China is strong. Uh, you know, if it was in all, all three of our mutual interests to, uh, you know, require Brazil of giving that land back, then maybe they would listen. I don't know. Hmm. I, I, I'm not, I'm not good uh, with that sort of thing, but I know that that is what the science says and what sure. basic human decency says needs to happen. And I mean, alternative technologies, carbon capture, what what are you hopeful for in terms of technology? And, uh, you know, what role do you see technology play moving forward in, in solving this? Because there's been, you know, a fair amount of innovation, but, you know, we're from the startup world, sort of with Tor. I mean, if you look at just the capital that has been invested into consumer technologies, etc., it still pales what is being invested uh, in into climate action or climate technology. It's been so fascinating in the last year to watch the Silicon Valley and venture capitalist world flock to carbon and climate and electric cars and carbon sequestration and and imagining an entire, you know, power system built on hydrogen or mm -hmm. how are we going to power diesel trains? We can switch diesel trains to hydrogen fuel cells. Like we we are in the active role of imagining how our machines are going to work uh, for the next 50 years, or at least. So a lot of those companies that are being born right now are going to have those solutions. So, you know, yeah, throwing a ton of money at these solutions and figuring out what works is going to be a good strategy. I'm also just tried to broaden the sense, broaden the definition of technology much further than what is currently, you know, commonly. Held, I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
racism is also a technology. It's a tool that is used to to achieve a, a purpose. And I think, at least in the United States, it's a complete social construct. Like there are ways that we can focus on having people who are, you know, at the front lines of the climate emergency involved in all of these conversations in Silicon Valley, the people who are affected most by climate change need to have not only a seat at the table, but a driving force in in determining what technologies are going to become dominant. Because I'm not a huge fan of electric cars for the reason that I'm not a huge fan of cars. Like, I would much rather have a future like Amsterdam or Copenhagen in the United States than just a Houston or mm-hmm. a Los Angeles that just uses a different form of like, you know, there are people, pedestrians, people who use people powered transit, you know, bicycles or electric scooters or any of that sort of thing. You have to design the city around the mode of transportation that you want. I would much rather have a more dense city where um, it's walkable and bikeable. That is a technology that should be used instead of just saying, how can we develop a quick charging electric battery? We should think of how can we develop a city block where people want to live and they're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are companies that are doing that. There are, com- there are design companies that are startup design companies that are trying to say, we want the people to be living here to be safe and he- healthy and thriving. I mean, that's the whole point of technology in the first place, right? Is to give people tools to live better lives. So I, th- I think I would just say that when we're talking about technology, we should broaden that, um, that mm-hmm. conversation as much as possible. And speaking of technologies, and let's let's go to Bitcoin for a second. But you know, it could be another technology, even electric cars. You know, which obviously have other externalities, right? With you know the battery production, cobalt, etc. You've been very critical um, of Bitcoin. Actually, in preparation for this call, I um, asked a few of my like most hardcore you know Bitcoin believers um, about their opinion, and and they would acknowledge you know how. Um, electricity intensive it is currently, but they would say, and I haven't found actually studies confirming that, that there's a lot of, and more and more, you know, of the um, electricity being used for Bitcoin transactions comes from hydroelectric plants. um, And that, you know, the sort of energy used, you know, needs to be compared to this saving in energy of all the industries that Bitcoin will replace. So that's kind of the Bitcoin narrative. How do you counter that? Yeah, no, I think that I don't have a problem with cryptocurrencies at all mm-hmm. in general as as a te- as a technology because mm-hmm. I think there is a massive potential of democratizing money, really, mm-hmm. you know, democratizing finance. And I'm especially focused on some uh currencies like what was it called? I think there's Celo and Stellar yeah. and and even Ethereum is switching from proof of uh, work to proof of stake. So there are proof of stake coins that are specifically focused on providing financial services specifically for places that are currently left behind in the in the financial system as it currently is. Mm-hmm. That's important work that, that should be done. And I understand the argument about incentivizing the switch to renewable power because we need to have every... Every tool that we can get that will shut down coal plants, basically, uh, around the world. 
The problem is that the way Bitcoin specifically is designed, it's designed to be the sort of arms race of machines solving increasingly pointless math problems and using an incredible amount of energy to do it to secure the network Mm -hmm. and to make sure that the miners are, you know, paid for their work. So all of that is unnecessary. It's Mm -hmm. just not, I mean, we have different coins that work better that require less than 1% of the use total. I mean, Mm -hmm. all the other uh, coins combined require less than 1% of the energy that Bitcoin uses. And I I just think it's unnecessary. And I think that it's really, uh, it's really, to me, a example of capitalism gone nuts, honestly. It's like, it's like here we have this, it's essentially an arbitrary thing that is being invested billions of dollars into. And as it currently sits, it's cannibalizing renewable energy from more useful technologies. Like you can also, um, I think one of the arguments is like, well, this energy was not being used. Like there are lately, there's been these videos um, circulating of, of natural gas flared out of oil wells. So mm-hmm. that um, in the United States, at least, that natural gas would would just escape to the atmosphere as methane, or it would be burned for no reason, flaring. Uh, It would be flared um, to try to turn it into CO2 at least, which has uh, an uh, 80-fold less carbon footprint than methane does. So Mm -hmm. they're saying, look, we're solving climate change by making use of this uh, wasted energy. Well, we should we should not be drilling for oil in the first place. We should be shutting those oil wells down entirely and switching to re- if they wanted to solve climate change, they could be building and funding their own wind farms or mm. their own solar panels and then providing, you know, 80 or 90 percent of that power that's generated to the local community rather than to, you know, computer servers that are pointless. <laughs> that's my, that's my point. Let's talk about companies. So um, I read a staggering statistic that about 70% of all climate change since the Industrial Revolution was created by just 108 companies. I think it's also something you wrote. Um, how should companies think about externalities? Like how, sh- if we price them in, wouldn't that also lead to products that are you know, too expensive and for people um, you know, being specifically hurt in, in lower income classes and you know, not being like, what's the fair way to deal with externalities? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, of course, at a, at a minimum, that companies should be paying for the damage that they're causing, paying to undo the damage that, the, that they're causing. If you factor in, you know, when when companies like Exxon and Shell say, we're striving to be a net zero uh, carbon company, they're usually only talking about their company's actual business operations, like Mm -hmm. their first order emissions, they're not talking about the fuel that their consumers burn, you know, that Mm -hmm. they, that they are being sold. And, you know, if you broaden that definition um, and regulated based on that definition, then those 108 companies would be required to fund, you know, the switch to zero energy for 70% of the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not, they don't have that, money to do that you know like you said i think the problem is 
they would go out of business um, and they would just leave it to their national governments to clean up uh, the problem. So I think that, you know, I think the solution here is that, you know, first off, we should not, um, at least in the United States, we should not be allowing any future fossil fuel development, like no pipelines, no oil wells, no anything. We have enough right now. We have more than enough right now to to have that transition to a zero carbon world. Like we can keep using what we have until we break that, you know, if until we get to the point where we have enough energy to replace it. But it mm-hmm. would only take a couple of years if we were full, if we were focused on this at 100% interest level, <laughs> um, we would be able to build enough renewable energy to offset our um, fossil fuel industry pretty quickly. It mm-hmm. would take a couple of years. Like it, it's not, I don't think it's as uh, existential of a problem as a lot of um, fossil fuel companies like to say. And then those companies would go out of business as well, or they mm-hmm. would be forced to innovate into becoming a renewable energy company. Like, you know, you would just have to change their business model um, in, in order to do something that's not destroying the planet. And let's talk about our individual behavior. Um, you famously pledged a no-fly sort of travel um, system for yourself, and, and it, it also went viral on, on Twitter. Um, I saw you said get rid of the lawn was an article. You um, also wrote about almonds being actually more efficient water uh, users than dairy or beef. So it's it's so hard, I guess, to navigate um, this if you're not... Um, you know, totally committed to spending a lot of time uh, in in researching. And and uh, so what would be some sort of quick wins, some of the things that you tell your family and friends, like the five things that really everybody should be doing? It depends on who you are, first off. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's helpful to put your, you know, put your life and your habits into a carbon footprint calculator just for your own interest to sort of see What's my number one or number two big things? Because it might be surprising. For me, it was very surprising. I didn't realize that flying was 80% of my emissions. And so I was able to cut my emissions by 80% by stopping flying. It was. Are you still doing it? Yeah. Well, I think oh. we've. There have been a couple of family vacations yeah. um, to where I have now given myself this sort of like once a year or once every other year for occasions um, that are important to us. But even still, that is more than the global average. You know, um, 80% of people in the world have never, well, I think, I can't remember right off, but somewhere between 50 and 80% of people in the world have never flown at all. So it is a very unequal way of burning carbon that only wealthy people do it, basically. But what I have learned um, after that period where I um, decided that I would never fly again, I learned a lot about how your decisions also clearly impact others around you, impact your loved ones. So I decided to, in the future, be, you know, also aware of what my family and friends uh, do and and need. And to say, like, to not be as extreme about it, because I don't think that extremism is what we're trying to, we're, we're not trying to live in a world with extremism. We're trying to live in a world where we, you know, get the consent of each other and where we talk to each other and have conversations about the path we are heading down together. So, and that requires doing, doing things that you feel uncomfortable doing, uh, honestly, um, because it's going to help other people survive. You know, this is important because, you know, we started this conversation talking about 
during the pandemic, we learned how to do hard things for each other. This is another example of that. So now we can think back to like, remember when I wore a mask and lived inside for a year? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, I can also start mm-hmm. thinking about vacations differently. In Europe, you have the ability to travel the entire continent in a way that, you know, if you have night trains, for example, you can wake up and be, you know, half a continent away. And eventually we'll get there in the United States. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've had some amazing vacations here within even walking and driving distance. You know, for my 40th birthday a couple of weeks ago, we went and stayed in a hotel in another part of the city here. And we're able to, you know, have a fancy meal and sit in the hot tub. And like, it was nice. It was nice. Um, and we didn't have to go to the Caribbean for that. And it reminds me, by the way, of, of uh, something that our Minister of Health said at the beginning of the pandemic, which he became very famous for in Germany, where he said, you know, there will be a lot of things that we will have to forgive each other for, um, you know, as we are kind of navigating really uncharted uh, territory. Um, as long as, you know, we have good intentions. And, you know, are we kind of, I'm being mindful of the time, we have a few minutes left, so I'm, I'm coming sort of to the closing section. Um, future outlook, I mean, are we adapting to a warming world? Is that inevitable? Um, you know, how, how do you see these you know, ideas of, you know, exploring Mars as the only um, opportunity for, Uh, humanity to continue to exist? Like, how do you think really 100, 200 years down the line? Sure. Yeah, I think that, well, first off, we'll, we will still be having sea level rise 100 and 200 years from now. That's the sort of lag time um, that's built into the oceans uh, in terms of um, Antarctica will still be melting, even if we stabilize um, warming. It takes that long for for the planet to adjust. I mean, That's in, in, and if you think about it, that's a, a, a snap of the fingers in a geological history. A hundred years is, is, is hardly anything. Uh, but I think, you know, if we work and do what we need to do in the next 10 to 30 years and stabilize climate at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius, I think the most important thing we'll have learned is how to take care of each other. You know, we'll extend these lessons from the, from the pandemic. We will learn how to have a truly global society where we're cooperating, where we will be able to notice and appreciate the world around us in a way that we hadn't before. Uh, we will become, uh, in some ways, an ecological civilization. We will have changed our behavior to make sure that our planet uh, will continue to thrive. And so, therefore, we will also continue to thrive Because we are part of this planet, we can't separate ourselves away from this planet. And I don't think that we will have a future necessarily on Mars or in other planets because those planets were not made for, you know, like we're, we are not adapted to those planets. And, you know, like it could be, you know, tens of thousands of years from now that technology will so radically change to where that's possible. But I don't think that should necessarily be a primary objective. I think we should, we, we will be just fine here for a very long time. If we do what we need to do, uh, I don't think we should sort of deviate from that uh, focus that this is our home and it's a great place. You know, we can we can focus on te our technology on detecting asteroids and in monitoring the sun and all of those things. But I think that we will we will have a future that is better than we could imagine right now if we do what we need to do. 
And then just finally, I've read you've been very open also about the sort of existential despair that, that you feel in, in this work, right? And I don't know if you would consider yourself an activist. Would you actually? Um, I mean, I, th I think that I support activists. Yeah. Um, and I think that as a journalist or as a scientist, that's also often will earn you the label of activist. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think that that is my theory of change is that we need to have a small group of very committed people to demand mm -hmm. radical change, you know. There is a, a study from a Harvard sociologist, Erica Shenoweth, who found that we only need three and a half percent of the population of any given time to sort of rise up in a nonviolent um, revolution to, to make those demands met. Um, and we were in, in, in New Zealand right before the pandemic. We had reached that in the climate strike mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. um, they reached 3.5 percent of people in the streets on one day. And how would you go about like convincing or, or you know, inspiring um, the next generation of people to go down, you know, and, and rise up, considering that also, you know, when I talk to some of my activist friends, for example, like the, the hardship that comes with it and the sort of opportunity cost in, you know, not going down maybe the steady career uh, can feel so immense. Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of youth activists in particular, they don't see another path. You know, it's mm -hmm. their future that's on the line. So it's something that's going to happen regardless of if there's money for them or not. I don't think that, I think the rest of us can, yeah, can can focus on on making sure that their needs are provided for. Because they're the ones that are really going to be determining their own future in a ways. But they're asking us to change. They're, mm -hmm. We're the ones that have to change. Um, in order so that they can have a future. So I don't really think of it as, um, I think of it, my job is to listen, honestly, to what those demands are are being uh, asked of me. Uh, I think that's an important thing to do is to be flexible and to try to be willing to to understand where they're coming from so you know how important this is. Eric, thank you so much. Um, Want to share your Twitter handle? I know you're very active on Twitter with a huge following. Yeah, it's, it's uh, at Eric Holthouse. Eric, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for all the inspiring thoughts you shared with us today. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us again. Don't forget to subscribe to not miss out on our next episodes, where we will be sharing more unquarantined ideas and learnings from leaders across the field. We are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, Castro, Overcast, and Spotify. And many thanks to Eric Holthouse for sharing his knowledge and ideas with all of us.